This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Lord, I am grateful that you have brought us together again to receive from you. We are hungry for you, and we ask that you would fill us. Lord, we pray that you would be strong in our weakness and that your Holy Spirit would come, would give us what we need today. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Okay, this morning we're continuing our series on abundance that we have um, been looking at for, I think we started last week, maybe the week before. And I first uh, want to tell you about a practice that we do in our house that I uh, would not recommend necessarily as parenting advice, but it's something I do, and it's having a mama tax. Um, So if my kids ask me to serve them like cookies or to slice strawberries for them or to chop up some grapes, um, I take a portion of that and I eat it and that I give them what's left over. And there's this is often too much. Pr- I mean, we've done this for years, so they know about the mama tax. And so they, they'll say, like, can I have some cookies? Please don't take a tax. Um, but I do anyway. Um, and I do this. I do this primarily. The primary reason I do this is because I want their stuff. It's because... I, it looks good to me, and, you know, I never take a mama tax of, like, Brussels sprouts or anything like that, but if they, if, like, if it looks good to me, then I want some, and I have the power, and I can chop apples, and they can't, so I can take this tax, and I do, and then secondarily, um, I, you know, I want to teach them about sharing, and I hope they they love their mom and will share with her. But honestly, that's not the primary reason. This is not a love offering, and uh, they, it doesn't matter if they protest. I, uh, it's forced, like tax, which is how it got its name. So uh, when people like me preach about tithing, uh, I think sometimes it can sound a little like we're asking for a God tax. That we want, um, like I'm telling you that if you want God to take care of you that you have to pay up, or that like a mama tax, uh, we love you and God loves you, but there's maybe a little bit of selfishness in it, that uh, the, the church or God is trying to kind of force you to give up your stuff against your will. Um, and whether you're kicking and screaming like my kids and protesting it, or not, that God uh, just wants your stuff. And um, I wanted to start by saying that's not at all what we are doing here. That's not at all what we're after. God isn't asking for a God tax. He wants your heart. He wants far more than 20% of your cookies or your strawberries. He wants your heart. Um, when you pay uh, your actual taxes to the government, um, to whatever government entity you're paying taxes to. Um, The government doesn't care if you are happy about it or not. You can take your tax payment and 
before you mail it in, put it on the ground, stomp on it, spit on it, curse the government, mail it in grumpy, and they will be just as happy to receive your money. They do not care about your heart. They're after your money. But I really want you to hear this morning that God does not need your money. God is fine with or without our money. And the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. So I am not anxious that God um, might not provide for the needs of his people. I am fully confident that God will take care of his church. So that's not what's happening this morning. But in this passage that we heard from 2 Corinthians, it says, Each one of you must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. God, unlike the government or unlike me with my mom attacks, does not want you to give reluctantly or under compulsion, but cheerfully. Why? Why? Because Christians, as Christians, we believe that God uses the stuff of earth this very material, mundane, earthy stuff to draw us into heaven. We practice this each week when we take the Eucharist, that it's this earthy, material uh, stuff, these practices of earth that guide our heart. And so God asks you to trust him, and so he asks you to trust him with your money. And trusting him with your money is a way to step into, it's a practice of trusting him with your life. And we turn this morning to Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, which will be our primary focus this morning. And he says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will wear, or your body, what you will put on. And in this passage, uh, immediate, so he starts with therefore, right? So we need to look at what's right before this. And the passage immediately before this is that Jesus is preaching about money. And he and his listeners, he's asking his listeners to decide who they will worship. He says, you cannot serve both God and mammon, or God and money, or God and gain, is how that's sometimes translated. And then he goes straight to, because this is a sermon, there wasn't chapter divisions there, so he goes straight to, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. He says, you can't worship God in money, therefore, don't worry, don't be anxious. These go hand in hand in Jesus' sermon. Dale Bruner, about this connection between these passages, says, at the root of the money question is the anxiety question. And so Jesus moves to the root issue of anxiety. And I want to add this morning, at the root of the money question is the issue of anxiety. And the question at the root of anxiety is, who do you trust with your life? So Jesus tells his listeners, do not be anxious about your life. And there's this debate among um, Bible scholars and theologians about whether this is a comforting statement like he's saying hey guys you don't have to worry about your life or whether this is a command like don't worry about your life and I really like splitting the difference and one commentator um, calls this a comforting command and I love that language I love the idea that the commands of God hold comfort in them 
that the way of Jesus is a way of command and comfort together, and that kind of uh, kind of buried in every command of God is an invitation to the good life, which I think is a great way to think about the commands of God. It's an invitation to the good life, an invitation to abundance. And here, Jesus is saying, come on, you don't have to worry. You don't have to worry. So don't worry. And so why don't we have to worry? So we are going to look at, at just three reasons. This is not an exhaustive list, but three reasons that G- Jesus highlights here in this passage of why we don't have to be anxious. So here Jesus um, says, Are you not more valuable than the birds? Are you not more valuable than the grass and flowers of the fields? He calls people to value. And then he says, don't, don't be anxious because your heavenly Father knows what you need. So Jesus is saying that the people of God don't have to worry because we know who is taking care of us. We know we have value in the eyes of God. We Christians believe and proclaim that we have a father who thinks we are valuable, and not in some kind of generic way, but that each of you by name is valuable to God, and that God knows what you as an individual with your own personality, with your own story, need. So I want you to notice here at the beginning that Jesus is naming necessities that are physical, what you will eat, what you will drink, what you will wear. And of course, God knows our spiritual needs as well. Of course, God feeds our souls, not just our bodies. But at the same time, I want to point out that we don't have kind of a Gnostic God that cares for our souls and not our bodies. Jesus doesn't say your heavenly father knows that you don't really need these mundane and earthly things. No, Jesus says God meets us in the very ordinary of our lives, in our physical needs, in our need for daily bread. Bruner, again, says this shows that the father is not to be left out of a single concern in our lives. God is not too busy to be bothered or too spiritual to be debased. Jesus values you, and he knows your needs. So, therefore, we are free. We're free from anxiety about money, from anxiety about our physical needs, if we know that we have a Father who loves us and will take care of us. So that's the first reason. Why else? Number two, why else should we, be, should we not be anxious? Well, Jesus seems to say here, because anxiety is so ineffective. It's so futile. And um, so I'm just going to, I feel like here I just need to stop and confess my sin to the church. Um, because it would be absolutely hypocritical for me to stand before you and preach this sermon about anxiety without admitting to you that this is one of my personal, most habitual, most besetting sins. I know about anxiety. I've had a lot of practice in it. And I am convinced uh, that just as trust in God is built day by day in the mundane practices of our life, like tithing, like 
prayer, like turning our fears and our work over to God. Anxiety is built by steady habit in my life, by steady habit in my thoughts. I have cultivated this. And um, I hate it personally as someone when people tell me anxiety doesn't help anything so stop worrying because that never makes me stop worrying I just feel like well that just makes me more anxious that my anxiety is not going to help anything it's like when I first got on a horse and people told me don't be afraid they can sense it and I'm like oh that just makes me more they know I'm afraid um so um but I, I cultivate these kind of steady habits of anxiety in my head. And very commonly, this is something I quote around my house. And um, it's this famous line of Mark Twain's. And he says, I've lived through some terrible things in my life, some of which actually happened. <laughs> and that's so true of me, man. Um, I so identify with that. And this is the place that I want to repent. This is a place that I want to learn to trust Jesus, to practice resting in God, to growing in grace, to learning to repent and obey this comforting command. I want to step into that day by day, that daily repentance. But here's the thing. Fear is a liar, It lies to us. And anxiety tricks us into believing that if we just manage our life right, if we just stay on top of things, that we can get out of life alive, or that we can build the life we want, or that we can perfectly protect those we love from harm. And it's a lie. It's a lie. And Jesus clearly sees that and calls this out and says, and which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his life, to his span of life? This morning, I want us to know that the only moment that God can meet us is in the moment that we are in, right now. And when we are so busy thinking futuristically of what could happen or what might happen or what tragedies or horrors or hardship might await us, we are missing God's care for us and sustaining of us in this minute, in this hour. God does not meet us in the imagined future. That's not the place to find God. God provides for us right in this moment. And we have to practice living in the present. And I know this is a common cliche now. You can go to like Hobby Lobby or Michael's and there'll be tons of little signs that say to live in the present. And I'm not trying to speak in platitudes here, but I am trying to point out what Jesus is actually saying. Jesus is telling us that death cannot be avoided by anxiety. That pain cannot be avoided by anxiety. And then he points to the birds who live in the present tense. And he calls us to that as an example. God is a God of future and and past, but he is a God that is calling us to the present tense. Trust God with the span of your life, with the way your life will pan out. And the only way you can do that is to trust God's presence in this exact moment. The only moment to meet God is the one that you are in. 
So why else? Number three, why else do we not have to worry? The people of God do not have to worry because we serve a God that is extravagant and that is abundant. If there was any question if God is this kind of Grinch figure that's doling out necessities begrudgingly, then verse 28 and 29 of what we read this morning should just put that to rest. Because Jesus is talking about provision of food and clothing, and then he begins, uh, he begins by, by pointing to basic necessities, but then he turns and he points to beauty. He even uses the word glory. He's gesturing at artistry even. What God gives us is beauty. It's not just adequate. It's glorious. It's extravagant. It's outrageous. It's wild. And part of our discipleship is to take on wonder so that we could see it, so that we could not miss the abundance that's all around us. G.K. Chesterton, in, in his great book, Orthodoxy, talks about we read fairy tales about golden apples to remind us for one forgotten moment that apples are green. And that we read about rivers running with wine, and I love his line, that for one wild moment we might remember that they run with water. That we could learn to take notice of the abundance that's around us, the beauty that's around us, and so our theme in these couple weeks is abundance. And, and, it's, and when we talk about stewardship, we're talking about abundance. And that word implies more than enough. The cup running over, the table full of good dishes, like some of us may have this week with Thanksgiving. Your house full of people you love, this kind of overflowing, more than you need. But I, I feel, and that's true, and God provides like that. He is abundant. But we also need to stop here <clears throat> while we are talking about abundance to look at what abundance really is. Because there's some things in our culture that can make that word, oh, I'm sorry, <coughs> ring hollow. There's some things in our culture that can make abundance um, kind of a fun house mirror for us. So let's look at two of those real quick. Number one. All of us who are raised in the West are discipled, and I'm using that word intentionally, we are discipled not only by the Christian story, but by late modern capitalism. And I'm not trying to be anti-capitalistic or advocate, I'm not getting into like a discussion about best economic systems here, but I do want to say that part of discipleship that all of us in the West have, whether Christians or not, People outside of the church are discipled by this as well. Is that from the earliest age, we've been taught that what will save us is consumption. That the good life that we long for is found, can be acquired. It's found in acquisition. This looks different for all of us, depending on what your like, particular personality and subculture is. So for some of us, this is getting a big enough fund for retirement. For some of us, this is luxuries, like marble countertops and truffles. For others, this may be getting out of debt or paying off student loans. For some, it may be consumption of experiences or travel or places or even relationships, even people. 
But we believe that if we just fill our lives with the right things, we can have abundant life. We can make life abundant. And our culture says that if you aren't totally happy, if you aren't, then you're doing something wrong. You need better self-care, or you need to buy more stuff, or you need better ways to uh, self-expression or to embrace your authentic self or to indulge more desires. And this consumer, consumeristic impulse is deeply embedded in all of us and has even been baptized by some preachers, by some Christians, to say that God wants you to be rich and healthy, and if you aren't, that you're doing something wrong or that you don't have enough faith. So much of scripture puts to death these notions that I, you could almost just kind of throw a dart at the Bible and land on something that, that could refute this. But what I mostly want to point to is the life of Jesus. Because we believe that the most abundant life ever to be lived on earth was by Jesus. The most glorious and beautiful way to be a human being was shown to us by Jesus. And this was a man who never married, who never had sex, who was poor, who we were told was acquainted with sorrow. And this is the one, this man, who said, I come to give you life and give it most abundantly. The Father met all of Jesus' needs. And this is the kind of union with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that we are called into. This is the abundance that God is calling us to, not just a nice car or a fat bank account or acquiring more and more and more stuff until you die. So that's one struggle with this passage in our culture. The other is that if you are um, anything like me, when we're thinking about this passage and the idea of abundance, that you struggle to believe this passage. And part of that is because we've seen dead birds and dead flowers. But more importantly, many of us have seen abject poverty. We've seen hunger. Even in our city, according to statistics from the Community Food Bank, three out of four children who attend Pittsburgh public schools face food insecurity and hunger on a regular basis. That's just here among us. And certainly there are places on earth right now that are far worse where children are facing even fatal hunger. So I don't have a tidy theological answer for you here about how to hold that together, except to say that, yes, the world is not the way it is meant to be. The world is not the way it will one day be. And that these little ones who are hungry, they too are valuable to God. They too are seen. We, and then also, we who have more than enough, who have abundance in the way that I've described, have a responsibility to share that with others. It is, in fact, a Christian imperative to do this. But I also want to note and be clear that this promise of Jesus to look at the birds, to look at the lilies, to see how they are cared for, is not a promise that nothing bad will ever happen to us. 
Remember that we are called out of anxiety, not because birds and flowers live forever, but we are called out of anxiety because we are told that we are valuable to the Father, that we are noticed and infinitely valued by the creator of all things. Jesus himself suffered on earth. Jesus himself died took on a life of poverty and died, died even as a victim of torture. How can we call that abundant? Because we don't define abundance by life going well for us at every minute. We find abundance and we define abundance truly in the presence and by the presence of God. We find abundance in the presence of God even in dependence on God. Our picture of ultimate heavenly abundance is this meal we are about to come to together. It's a little snippet, a little snapshot of abundance, this Eucharist that we are taking together. And it's not because there's enough food for all of us, but because God is meeting all of our needs in Christ. And then, this is key, sending us out to feed others who are spiritually and materially poor. He is sending us out to those who are hungry, spiritually and physically. And we are being sent as people who have been fed on Christ, who have found abundance in Christ. Okay, so I want to close this, to wrap this up, by telling you a little secret. This is insider information that preachers know. And, um, and, and Joel may hear this down at the seminary, but when seminary students and people prepare to go into ministry, no one's ever super excited about the tithing sermons. And there's this kind of open joke at, like, you know, pastor conventions where someone says, you know, we have to do a capital campaign every year and everyone's like, oh, better you than me, man. Like, we're so glad that's you. Um, So preachers don't love talking about this. And I think that that's because it's been done so very badly so often. And there are preachers that will try to fit in talking about money to this American idolatry of consumerism. And sometimes, um, this has been called the prosperity gospel, by the way. So they will tell you that if you give money to the church, that they promise that God will give you five times the amount. Or uh, have you guys heard stuff like this before? That if um, if I got big nods from the nine o'clock on this, or that if you can, um, if you give to the church, that you can obligate God to give you what you want, or you can sort of con God into begrudgingly taking care of you. And I've heard testimonies like this in church, like. You know, I gave $10 to the offering, and then I won $100 the next day in bingo. And there's a direct causative relationship between that. And, um, and I have stories. I think there is, I mean, there is this place of, um, I have stories in my own life where uh, we were in grad school and broke. And, um, and God, have stories of God just providing in ways that are shocking and that are beautiful. So... I believe and know that God can do that. But also, 
Um, Steve Beck, who's a mentor of mine, was a pastor in North Carolina and an amazing guy, gave one of my favorite um, sermons on tithing, and, and he, said, he said in it, if you give money to the church, you will have less money, which I love. <laughs> and then he says, and that's a good thing. That's a good thing. Why? Why is that a good thing? So I want to answer by telling you that I realized this week that I am not a normal preacher, um, and I mean that, that I'm weird, because I was so excited about getting to preach on tithing. So why? Why was I so excited? Because, honestly, because I think there is no more practical place of discipleship than this. So I have this theory that I'm just testing out. This is just Tish's theory and could be wrong. So you can give me feedback because it'll probably end up in like a book someday. So tell me if it's wrong. So that if you really want to take your spiritual temperature, if you want to see, if you're curious about what you really love and worship, which may not be what you think you love and think you worship, you can look at three things. Number one, how you use your body. This involves sex, sleep, alcohol, Number two, how you use your money, where you spend your money. And number three, what keeps you up at night? In the wee hours when you wake up in the middle of the night or when you can't get to sleep, what do you think about? What are the things that turn over and over in your head? What do you worry about? What do you uh, dwell on in the middle of the night? So this morning's comforting command out of anxiety can't just be something we adopt in our mind. It has to impact our habits, our very earthy, mundane, ordinary lives, how we use our money. So I wanted to talk together about money this morning. I was excited about this because I long for us as a community to give more and more territory of our lives over to Jesus. And I can't think of any better, more practical way of doing that than to deal with money. If you give money to the church, you will have less money. And that is a good thing. Why? Why is that a good thing? Because that is how we learn dependence on God. And it is in that place of dependence, the place of ultimate and utter dependence on God, that abundant life is found. If we want abundant life, we need to learn together to depend on God. The writer, Lauren Winner, talked about tithing and the challenge it is with our, um, with our generation. And she said, I know of nothing that will transform someone's spiritual life more abruptly than beginning to tithe. If you want to learn about dependence on God, tithe. If, you want to ha- if we want to have our treasure in heaven, tithe. If we want to have any hope of solidarity with the poor, tithe. So today, in a very practical way, God is calling us to worship a God who values us, who even values you by name, who knows what you need, and who is extravagantly abundant. We are called to depend utterly on that kind of God. 
could we believe this together? And in the most pragmatic ways, could we depend on this God together? In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.